Our system rewards billionaires and millionaires for keeping their workers in poverty. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today, including a TED Talk from David Burkus, the Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, Test Tube News, The Young Turks, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, and a Progressive Faith Sermon from Reverend Dr. Roger Ray. How much do you get paid? Don't, don't answer that out loud. But put a number in your head. Now, how much do you think the person sitting next to you gets paid? Again, don't loud. At work, how much do you think the person sitting in the cubicle or the desk next to you gets paid? Do you know? Should you know? Notice, it's a little uncomfortable for me to even ask you those questions. But admit it, you kind of want to know. Most of us are uncomfortable with the idea of broadcasting our salary. We're not supposed to tell our neighbors, and we're definitely not supposed to tell our office neighbors. The assumed reason is that if everybody knew what everybody got paid, then all hell would break loose. There'd be arguments, there'd be fights, there might even be a few people who quit. But what if secrecy is actually the reason for all that strife? And what would happen if we removed that secrecy? What if... Openness actually increased the sense of fairness and collaboration inside a company. What would happen if we had total pay transparency? For the past several years, I've been studying the corporate and entrepreneurial leaders who question the conventional wisdom about how to run a company. And the question of pay keeps coming up. And the answers keep surprising. It turns out that pay transparency, sharing salaries openly across a company, makes for a better workplace for both the employee and for the organization. When people don't know how their pay compares to their peers, they're more likely to feel underpaid and maybe even discriminated against. Do you want to work at a place that tolerates the idea that you feel underpaid or discriminated against? But keeping salaries secret does exactly that, and it's a practice as old as it is common despite the fact that in the United States, the law protects an employee's right to discuss their pay. In one famous example from decades ago, the management of Vanity Fair magazine actually circulated a memo entitled Forbidding Discussion Among Employees of Salary Received. Forbidding Discussion Among Employees of Salary Received. Now, that memo didn't sit well with everybody, that New York literary figures Dorothy Parker, Robert Benchley, and Robert Sherwood, all writers in the Algonquin Roundtable, decided to stand up for transparency and showed up for work the next day with their salary written on signs hanging from their neck. <laughs> Imagine showing up for work with your salary just written across your chest for all to see. But why would a company even want to discourage salary discussions? Why do some people go along with it while others revolt against it? It turns out that in addition to the assumed reasons, pay secrecy is actually a way to save a lot of money. You see, keeping salaries secret leads to what economists call information asymmetry. This is a situation where in a negotiation, one party has loads more information than the other. And in hiring or promotion or annual raise discussions, an employer can use that secrecy to save a lot of money. Imagine how much better you could negotiate for a raise if you knew everybody's salary. 
Economists warn that information asymmetry can cause markets to go awry. Someone leaves a pay stub on the copier and suddenly everybody is shouting at each other. In fact, they even warn that information asymmetry can lead to a total market failure. And I think we're almost there. And here's why. First, most employees have no idea how their pay compares to their peers. In a 2015 survey of 70,000 employees, two-thirds of everyone who's paid at the market rate said that they felt they were underpaid. And of everybody who felt that they were underpaid, 60% said that they intended to quit, regardless of where they were, underpaid, overpaid, or right at the market rate. If you were part of this survey, what would you say? Are you underpaid? Well, wait, how do you even know? Because you're not allowed to talk about it. Next, information asymmetry, pay secrecy, makes it easier to ignore the discrimination that's already present in the market today. In a 2011 report from the Institute for Women's Policy Research, the gender wage gap between men and women was 23%. This is where that 77 cents on the dollar comes from. But in the federal government, where salaries are pinned to certain levels and everybody knows what those levels are, the gender wage gap shrinks to 11%. And this is before controlling for any of the factors that economists argue over whether or not to control for. If we really want to close the gender wage gap, maybe we should start by opening up the payroll. If this is what total market failure looks like, then openness remains the only way to ensure fairness. Now, I realize that letting people know what you make might feel uncomfortable, but isn't it less uncomfortable than always wondering if you're being discriminated against or if your wife or your daughter or your sister is being paid unfairly? Openness remains the best way to ensure fairness. And pay transparency does that. And that's why entrepreneurial leaders and corporate leaders have been experimenting with sharing salaries for years. Like Dane Atkinson. Dane is a serial entrepreneur who started many companies in a pay secrecy condition and even used that condition to pay two equally qualified people dramatically different salaries, depending on how well they could negotiate. And Dane saw the strife that happened as a result of this. So when he started his newest company, Sumall, he committed to salary transparency from the beginning. And the results have been amazing. And in study after study, when people know how they're being paid and how that pay compares to their peers, they're more likely to work hard to improve their performance, they're more likely to be engaged, and they're less likely to quit. That's why Dane's not alone. From technology startups like Buffer to the tens of thousands of employees at Whole Foods, where not only is your salary available for everyone to see, but the performance data for the store and for your department is available on the company intranet for all to see. Now, pay transparency takes a lot of forms. It's not one size fits all. Some post their salaries for all to see. Some only keep it inside the company. Some post the formula for calculating pay, and others post the pay levels and affix everybody to that level. So you don't have to make signs for all of your employees to wear around the office. And you don't have to be the only one wearing a sign that you made at home. But we can all take greater steps towards pay transparency. For those of you that have the authority to move forward towards transparency, it's time to move forward. And for those of you that don't have that authority, it's time to stand up for your right to. So how much do you get paid? And how does that compare to the people you work with? You should know. And so should they.
Okay, I mentioned unions and wages. This is uh, a brilliant piece. The Economic Policy Institute uh, just uh, issued a report. It was written by Jake Rosenfeld, Pat Patrick uh, Dennis, and Jennifer Laird. And it's titled, Union Decline Lowers Wages of Non-Union Workers. The overlooked reason why wages are stuck in inequality is growing. And they, they point out, uh, pay for private sector workers in the last 35 years hasn't budged, right? And, and you know, I talk about this a lot. This is what we're seeing here is Reaganomics. And it was Reagan's war on unions, which he declared in, in the first couple of weeks of his presidency when he busted PATCO. In fact, for men in the private sector who lack a college degree and do not belong to a labor union, real wages today are substantially lower than they were in the late 70s before Reagan. I added the before Reagan part. And then they, they talk about in the debates over the causes of wage, wage stagnation, the decline in union power has not received nearly as much attention as globalization, technological change, and the slowdown in Americans' educational attainment. By the way, keep in mind, Donald Trump is basing most of his campaign on the fact that wages have been stagnant for 35 years. And he's saying it's because of Mexico. It's because of China. It's because of our trade deals. Well, to some extent it is, but it's also, and in fact, according to these guys at the Economic Policy Institute, largely because of the loss of unions in the United States, which is, you know, the cornerstone of Reaganism. Destroy the unions, you destroy the funding mechanism for the Democratic Party, and they'll have to start getting in bed with banksters, which is exactly what happened. So anyhow, they, they and so you would think that, you know, if Trump really wants to restore the American dream and bring back the American prosperity we had in the 50s, 60s and 70s, that he would be saying, hey, we need to go back to 35 percent unionization. Instead of the six or seven percent we have right now in the private sector. Of course, he's not talking like that because he's a Republican. I mean, no, as I just heard Harry Truman on this. So uh, here are the key findings of the report. One. For non-union private sector men, weekly wages would be an estimated 5% higher in 2013. This is the last year that they had numbers for that they could really crunch well. But it's, you know, I, I, you can extrapolate it to today. For non-union private sector men, weekly wages would be an estimated 5% higher in 2013 if private sector union density remained at its 1979 level. For a year-round work, in other words, Union density, number of mem people who are union members in the, in the workforce. For a year-round worker, this translates to an annual wage loss of $2,700. For the 40 million non-union private sector men, the loss is equivalent to $2.1 billion fewer dollars in weekly paychecks, which represents an annual wage loss of $109 billion, just slightly more than the net wealth of the Koch brothers. I added, for non-union private sector men without a bachelor's degree or more education, non-college graduates, weekly wages would be an estimated 8% higher in 2013 if union density remained at its 1979 levels. For a year-round worker, this translates into an annual wage loss of over $3,000. And they, they, they continue through the list. You know, it's uh, taking out these various slices of people. Uh, the degree of non-union wage decline reflects how much unionization has declined since 1979 among private sector men by two-thirds from 34% to 10%. That uh, 10% includes government uh, employees. Among women by more than one-third from 16 to 
and especially among non-college degree men, by more than two-thirds from 38 to 11 percent. As unions have receded from the private sector, their effect on the wages of non-members percent of unionization has declined. And this is, this is uh, they, you know, they go through more of the details and all this stuff, but you know, this is something I, I have been pointing out since we started this program 13 years ago, that for every good union job in an economy, there's always a parallel non-union job that basically has the same wages and benefits because the unions set the floor. And as you destroy the unions, you destroy the floor. And now working people in the United States are basically falling through the floor. Understanding of the situation of U.S. workers in 2016 will acknowledge that labor is in many ways international. The ability of textile workers in South Carolina to seek improvements in wages or conditions is tied directly to the ability of the corporation they work for to pay people in, say, Vietnam far less. Among its impacts, globalization has spurred solidarity among workers around the world who recognize that the conditions that a company like Walmart condones and profits from abroad affect Americans, not only as consumers of the products made, but as workers fighting for better lives. After a horrific fire at a garment factory in Bangladesh killed more than 100 workers making clothes for big brands like Walmart, Disney, and Sears, Counterspin spoke with Scott Nova of the Workers' Rights Consortium about how media focus on whether Walmart knew its clothes were being produced at that particular factory obscures the multinational's power. Whatever the relationship was between Walmart and this factory that burned on Saturday, and there's no question that Walmart clothes were there, it's important to understand that Walmart is the biggest buyer of apparel and the most powerful player in the Bangladesh apparel industry. And what Walmart does is place tremendous pressure on its contractors in Bangladesh, as in other countries, to produce at the lowest possible price. That, in turn, gives factories a very powerful incentive to reduce production and labor costs by running roughshod over the rights of workers. That, combined with a total lack of regulatory effort by the local government, is what produces sweatshop conditions and deadly fires. We asked Nova about often heard contentions from corporations and their media advocates that these are considered good jobs and good wages in, in this case, Bangladesh. And besides, if those workers got paid more, the price of the clothing they make would necessarily skyrocket. First of all, no job is good if it kills you. And workers should not have to take their lives into their hands when they walk into the workplace. You know, it's important to understand Bangladeshi workers are willing to work for low wages. Unfortunately, they're not paid low wages. They're paid brutal sub-poverty wages. 18 cents an hour is the minimum wage for apparel workers. They're not even enough to feed a family. 
And so what you've got is Western brands and retailers who are taking advantage of the poverty and desperation in that country to get workers to work at absurdly low wages in dangerous conditions because those workers lack any alternative. But the reality is that none of this is necessary. Labor costs as a percentage of the final retail price of garments is tiny, maybe 1% to 2% of final retail price, which means that Gap and H&M and Walmart and the other big players in Bangladesh could easily afford to greatly increase wages and to ensure that their suppliers undertake the necessary fire safety precautions with a minimal impact on the corporate bottom line and a minimal impact on prices for consumers. Unfortunately, they refuse to pay one penny more to the factories. As for those corporate claims, cited credulously in press accounts, that they simply don't know who their contractors or subcontractors are, Nova had thoughts about that, too. It's nonsense. These are corporations, Walmart in particular, that work extremely hard and effectively to maintain very tight control over supply chain logistics and production in their systems. Indeed, at Walmart, tight control of the supply chain as a means of minimizing cost is essentially a religion. So it's very hard to swallow claims from these companies that, in fact, they have so little control over their supply chains that they do not even know on a given day which factories are making their clothing. And the bottom line is they have the power to ensure that they know which factories are making their clothing, and they have the power to ensure that those factories operate safely. If, if they don't know uh, which factories are making their clothing, that's because they've chosen not to know. Workers die on the job in this country, too, of course. 29 miners died in an explosion at Upper Big Branch in West Virginia as a result of safety violations by operator Massey Energy. Unusually, in this case, a higher-up, Massey CEO Don Blankenship, was to some degree called to account, sentenced to a year in prison earlier this year. Attorney Bruce Stanley told Counterspin the pressure to pursue such cases needs to start locally, and that's not easy for many reasons. I was a local reporter on a, on a small southern West Virginia newspaper out of college, and, uh, and I, I appreciated the strain that uh, uh, one would feel when making decisions about whether or not to write stories about certain local, quote, powerful local officials. I mean, that pressure on local media is palpable. And unless there is an independent media there, uh, and the, 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 the notion of some young prosecutor or any prosecutor standing up and saying, hey, enough is enough and we need to take an independent stand here, it calls for a conviction that, uh, you know, frankly, most uh, average citizens uh, don't possess. And when you weigh that, you know, against the economics of, of, a, of a local economy, a, a single-engine economy, uh, you know, it gets very difficult. When, you know, a, a lot of these miners' families uh, who, uh, who complain about the safety issues associated with operating in a Massey mine, many of those same families were the ones who were complaining about the alleged war on coal where coal is saying, hey, we're being regulated out of business by the Obama administration. So it becomes a very, very difficult uh, dynamic. I, I think it's also important to remember, though, and I, I do want to revisit quickly the, uh, the nature of the federal charges that he was charged against. Mm -hmm. That is not local. That is something that the national politicians could do something about. That's something that the Congress of the United States has had on its desk for some time now and has chosen not to act. And that's a choice not to act as a, a lack of leadership from Washington representatives from the coal fields. Uh, you know, Shelley Capito and Joe Manchin and, and Mitch McConnell all represent constituents 
who are laboring in unsafe mine conditions where, uh, you know, that one-year maximum penalty is all that's out there. They can change that any time that they want. The administration would back that change, and they know that, and they choose not to. Uh, and so that one, uh, you know, is very problematic when weighed against what you know is going to be the inertia in the, at the local setting because of the overall power of coal in these communities, what they could be doing from... Uh, uh, from a, uh, with a stroke of a pen, essentially, at the national level to prevent that. Why should it be mm-hmm. that it's 30 years to lie to Wall Street, one year to conspire to violate the mine laws, uh, safety laws of the United States? And that's a choice that Congress has made. One thing media could do, Stanley said, is to stop referring to workplace deaths as if they were extremely rare or remnants of the past. As I said earlier, Fifty-three men, at least, died on Don, under Don Blankenship's watch. You know, we watched Upper Big Branch because 29 died in one spectacularly uh, uh, stupid explosion. But, you know, there are, you know, I mean, there are another, you know, 20 minor, you know, or so underground, one or two at a time, dying because of the same management style, the same sense of dollars over men, the same sense of production over safety uh, that accounted for Upper Big Branch. The laws are on the books. There are inspectors there to enforce the law, and there should be prosecution for the people who uh, disobey the law. End of story. If that becomes the rubric, if that becomes the way in which we conduct ourselves as a society, then hopefully we will get to the point where the upper big branches, where the aracomas, or, you know, the, the mangled arms and twisted limbs and, and, and broken backs are, are, are things of the past. But uh, to, you know, uh, put it off as, you know, sometimes I just like to think that, you know, I, I get concerned that we think that, uh, you know, uh, I can turn off the TV and, 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 it, and it goes away. Well, it doesn't go away. It's there. And it's not, it's not going to go away until that step after step, step by step, mechanical effort is undertaken to get the law in place and enforce the law, period. From coal mines to fine dining sounds like a leap, but the unequal struggle between workers and owners plays out there as well. And as we discussed with author and advocate Saru Jayaraman, in restaurants we can see clearly how defending workers' rights connects and overlaps with defending the rights of women and of people of color. Jayaraman talked about the fight to eliminate the tipped wage. Our campaign is not actually at this minute to eliminate tipping altogether. That's a huge misconception. We are trying to eliminate the lower wage for tipped workers, which this industry has gotten away with for over 100 years. The the true history is that tipping originated in Europe. When it came to the United States in the late 1850s, there was a massive anti-tipping movement so great that five states passed bans on tipping. And two industries, the restaurant industry and the Pullman train company, squashed that movement and demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything and let them live on customer tips. And that idea that the restaurant industry in particular could not pay its workers a wage and let them live on customer tips was codified into the very first minimum wage law as part of the New Deal. 
which gave tipped workers the right to a $0 minimum wage. And we've gone from $0 in 1938 to a whopping $2.13 an hour, which is the federal minimum wage for tipped workers in our country. Now, there are seven states that have completely eliminated that system and demand that the restaurant industry actually pay its workers a full wage and let tips be on top of that. California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska all demand that the restaurant industry pay a full wage and let tips be on top. And so our campaign, our effort, has been to eliminate that lower wage for tipped workers, that two-tiered system that's essentially legalized gender pay inequity because it's mostly women living on the lower wage. Because when you're a woman who lives off of tips for the majority of your income, as 6 million women in America do, you have to tolerate whatever a customer might do to you, however they may touch you or treat you or talk to you, because the customer is always right, because the customer is paying all of your income, truly, because your wage is so low. If you get 2 or 3 or $4 an hour, as it is in 43 states, your wage is so low, it goes entirely to taxes, and you're living completely off your tips. So if you're living completely off your tips, you're completely dependent on the whims of the customer, and you have to tolerate this kind of behavior. And our research shows it goes a step further. We found that management in states with lower wages for tipped workers encourages women to objectify themselves, wear tighter clothing, show greater cleavage in order to get more money in tips at three times the rate as they do in states like California, where a woman actually gets a full wage and doesn't have to rely on the whims of a customer. In restaurant work as elsewhere, sexism also intersects with racism. People of color and women of color get segregated into lower level segments of the industry and lower tipping occupations and lower paid occupations. You will see people of color in casual restaurants and fast food restaurants. If they're in fine dining, you'll see them in what we call the back of the house, the kitchen, or in lower tipped positions like a busser or a runner who often earns one-fifth of the tips that a server will make. And so, you know, when the industry says nobody actually earns two thirteen an hour, these are well-paid tipped workers. Well, there, there is a segment of the population for whom that's true. There are these wealthy white servers. I won't even say wealthy, actually. I will say um, better paid white servers who work in fine dining restaurants, and they should be paid a livable wage. They should be remunerated for the professional work that they do. This is a profession. It's a skilled profession, as it's recognized to be in other countries. But a big part of the problem is that people of color are not able to actually get to those great livable wage, fine dining server and bartending positions. Those jobs are not accessible to the vast majority of workers in this industry. So we need to do two things. We need to lift the floor by eliminating the lower wage for tipped workers and raising the wage overall for everybody. And we need to build the ladder. We need to lift the floor and build the ladder so that while we're lifting the floor, we also create much better ability for workers to move into continuously higher paying positions, especially fine dining server and bartending positions, which can be family supporting jobs. If 
If you're looking to hire a new employee, the task may feel daunting because there are so many job sites out there that you could spend time posting on, but now with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job opening to over a hundred job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, with a single click. And with ZipRecruiter, you don't have to juggle a hundred emails or calls to your office, just quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. They've got great recruiting tips as well. Of particular interest to me is a report that they wrote up about the effects of using gendered keywords in your postings. It's another one of those sneaky ways that bias creeps into the hiring process without anyone even noticing. Turns out you'll actually get fewer applicants if you use gendered keywords, like strong or competitive, which is sort of male phrasing, or polite and pleasant, which is more female phrasing. Using gender-neutral terms such as focused, professional, and courteous results in a larger and more diverse group of applicants. And if you have any questions about writing your post, ZipRecruiter's service team is armed with this data and is prepared to help employers avoid gendered terms in their job postings. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses and let them help stamp out gender bias in your hiring process. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Labor union membership in the United States has fallen steadily since the 1960s to 11%, its lowest point in 98 years. So what are labor unions, and are they still useful? Well, American labor unions took off during the Industrial Revolution. The Civil War decimated the rural Southern economy, driving many young people to urban industrial jobs. Labor unions formed to unite workers so that they had some bargaining power about wages and work conditions. Historically, manual laborers were paid low wages and then cast aside when they could no longer do the work. However, when union membership exploded in the late 1930s, laborers were able to demand better treatment. Since then, many companies have been forced to strike a delicate balance between their relentless pursuit of profits and appeasing the unions. Today, with so few American workers belonging to a union, many argue that they should be done away with altogether. A 2008 report by the Heritage Foundation think tank argues that unions are obsessed with equal treatment of workers, to a point where individual merit is nullified and promotions are only based on seniority. The report also points out that many of the repetitive manufacturing jobs of yesteryear are now performed by machines. Modern jobs just aren't as suitable for unions. On the other hand, the Economic Policy Institute reports in 2012 that the decline of union membership is allowing employers to undercut low- and middle-wage workers. Their increasingly limited access to good jobs and economic security contributes to the growing gap between the rich and poor in America. So how much power do existing labor unions have? Well, corporations have all but eliminated private sector unions. However, public sector jobs still have a 35% membership on average, especially workers in education, training, and library services. A 2013 Bureau of Labor Statistics report identifies a pay gap of nearly $4 per hour between union and non-union workers, which is over $7,000 more per year. Unions also have more access to employer health care and insurance benefits. For the workplaces that do have unions, members continue to benefit from higher wages and job security than their non-union counterparts, so they are still very useful in America. 
However, labor unions' constant decline in popularity calls into question the future of organized labor. The debate on the ultimate merits and necessity of American labor unions rages on. Over the Labor Day weekend, uh, a massive labor protest happened in India. And in fact, many are saying that this might be the largest strike in the history of humanity. The scale of it is very, it's difficult to comprehend, but we want to talk about why this strike happened uh, and who is taking part. Union officials said about 180 million workers, Jesus. including state bank employees, school teachers, postal workers, miners, and construction workers, were participating, but the figure could not be independently verified. But we do know that thousands of state-run banks, government offices, and factories were closed on Friday, and public transport disrupted, although the union leaders uh, made clear that essential services in terms of water production and availability and energy and things like that uh, were maintained, although this is, that's like 70% of the workforce of America choosing to, to, to strike on one day. Uh, they're not looking to make uh, the regular citizens of India suffer, obviously. They're just trying to make their voice heard. And this strike came after Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi began a push for increased foreign investment and privatization of some state-run industries. Unions fear these policies will undermine both wages and unemployment. And there is some evidence that that would actually be the case, that uh, these workers, many of whom are suffering under conditions that American workers can't even conceive of, it could actually become worse for them if this path uh, was uh, continued down. Right. I, I love that this strike is happening, and I know that with most strikes and most protests that are actually effective, they're inconvenient. And I know they're going to be inconvenient for India's population in general, but it's important that this happens, right? And so I feel like this is the natural way labor experiences progress in various countries. That's what happened here in the United States, where we had strikes, where we had protests, where labor unions got together and started fighting for uh, fair working conditions, safe working conditions. Right now, one of the reasons why so many major U.S. companies are outsourcing jobs to countries like India or China is because labor is a lot cheaper there. And mm -hmm. part of the reason why labor is a lot cheaper is because people get away with paying you know, their employees tiny, tiny amounts of money yeah. uh, in unsafe working conditions. Um, and I just think that this is just the natural process of how things are supposed to go, and I hope that they get real change in the country. I know that it's not necessarily the way things have been working out so far that's kind of pushing them to protest, but I think you know their fears of what the future could be like will hopefully change things for the better in general. Yeah, and so there's some word that, that in advance of the protests, when uh, the scale of it was starting to be understood inside of India, uh, that some uh, sort of consolations were given in advance, but the, the union leaders were like, no, we're continuing with this. Uh, we're going to fight for what we think is fair. Uh, we're going to give you some of those numbers, actually. Uh, the, uh, the head of one of the, the, the unions actually was quoted as saying, Prime Minister Narendra Modi said his fight is with poverty, but it seems his fight is with the poor in this country. Now, look, you can have different philosophies about how exactly you improve the condition of, of the working people of the poor in India or in the U.S., 
Uh, and that's totally fair. And obviously, there are some industries where it doesn't make sense to have uh, government control. We don't right. think that the government should, should provide all employment. But in a country that doesn't necessarily have the history or the legislation to protect workers, where uh, exploitation is not theoretical, where it is an everyday reality, you cannot simply give up these industries to people who are going to pay starvation wages exactly. to literally over 100 million workers. And so we can't simply look at it from our point of view and say, well, then why, why can't they have the same sort of balance uh, between private and public employment as we have here? They're on a very different historical arc. And we yeah, they have that. different laws, and, and they lack the laws necessary to protect their workers. By the way, the same laws that our unions fought for here in the U.S., right? Yeah. And so... I know that now I'm making this about the U.S., but I just want to get this point across. For anyone who gets angry about unions that doesn't believe in things like collective bargaining, understand what unions have done for the American worker here in the U.S., right? It's yeah. incredibly important. And, you know, the situation in India is different, but I could totally understand the fear of privatizing, you know, certain job opportunities. It would be a disaster, especially when you consider what private industries are paying Indian workers right now as we speak. Yeah, exactly. And look— Regardless of a year from now, 10 years from now, what ends up happening, it's always better to have more involvement in government with regular people. Mm -hmm. That's never been a terrible thing, so long as it's peaceful, and this is. And so that's something that we should, we should be enthusiastic about. Uh, I want to give you some of the numbers uh, that, that they're considering during these protests because it's going to really put it into, uh, into um, a good comparison with the, the current situation in the U.S., the strike was called after talks with finance minister Arun Jaitley broke down, with union leaders rejecting his offer to raise the minimum wage for unskilled workers from 96, the equivalent of $96 per month to $136 per month. Now, obviously, the cost of purchasing things in India is also very different, but we're talking about worlds of difference in the day-to-day -day experience. They're not talking for exorbitant uh, amounts of money. Now, for overall the, the workers, the amount was a little bit higher, something like uh, a little bit less than double that. Mm -hmm. But this is for unskilled workers who are making almost nothing at present. Um, and that's not to mention all of the, the lacking of benefits and things like that. Uh, the union said that the government should guarantee both Social Security and health care for all and should be hiking the minimum wage to double what it is offering in order to keep up with inflation. So they're concerned with wages. They're also concerned with everything outside of wages, which, of course, they're also not receiving the benefit of at this point. Yeah, I think I think overall these protests are good, and I hope it leads to um, not just what they're asking for, which is not privatizing certain industries, but that it improves the wages of people who are working in the private sector as well. I, it just needs to happen, and I think again this is the natural progression of things. Yeah, and I hope I hope that if they're wildly successful and they get all that they're looking for. That 50 or 60 or 70 years can go by and a new generation of people can just spit at the name of unions and forget all the things that they fought for and all the things that they gave us that we enjoy every single day. Like the weekend. Well, we like don't the enjoy weekend, the weekend every day. Lack of child labor, <laughs> you know I mean. a 40-hour work week, right? insurance, all of those things. Aren't they delightful? And screw you unions for fighting for those things and being willing to have your uh, skull crack. Get ready, come up with Come on, get the There's a lot of talk these days about cord cutters. I'm certainly one of them too. The internet, streaming media, and independent programs are allowing us to break free of the cable companies. So my hope is, if you are one of those people, 
then you take some of that saved money and throw it towards the independent shows you depend on for your news and entertainment. Yes, we run some ads, and those do help pay the bills, but memberships are what really make the world go round. Nothing is as dependable as a recurring payment of just a few bucks month after month from enough supporters to keep a show like this one afloat even if and when the ads dry up. So on my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default, but I know a lot of people hate them, so there's also Dwalla that allows safe and simple bank-to-bank transfers with no transaction fees, which is pretty great. Or I can help get you set up with a recurring payment through your credit or debit card using Square. It's just like coffee shops and small merchants use, like when they swipe your card on their phone. Those guys, they're good. If you sign up to donate six bucks a month or more, you get access to a podcast of bonus content I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. This week I told a story about our culture's very uncomfortable relationship with death and how that plays out in real life, and another behind-the-scenes story about how I tried to use my very meager influence to convince a company to be better. So again, you can support this independent show by going to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks for your support. Fourteen thousand drivers for the car services Uber and Lyft here in New York City have signed cards that they wish to be represented by the uh, Transit Workers Union here in the United States uh, and in New York City. This is a sign that is extremely important. It's a sign that the fantasy, which is all it ever was, that these new car services like Uber, like Lyft, and there are others, were some kind of technological event is put to rest. They weren't technological events. True, they were using software and apps in a new way that was somewhat different from the dispatching done by cab companies for decades before. But they weren't really about the new technology since the cab companies have now adopted that kind of technology and are using it pretty much themselves. What it was always about was an attempt to get around trade unions. So I want to recoup that history so no one makes the mistake again. In the early days of cab companies, there was a problem. Everybody got involved in the cab business. It was easy. You just had to know how to have Uh, how to get a driver's license and drive a car, and ipso facto, you could offer taxicab services. And many people did. It was a chaotic industry full of little individual and not so little group activities. Not much care was taken who the driver was, how competent he or she might be, what happened if there was an accident, etc. So pretty quickly, complaints began to rise. Riders were injured. Riders didn't like the attitudes of the driver. Driver was unable to manage the job real well, etc., etc. And then there was gouging of prices, etc. So guess what happened? Driving became difficult. Companies that had a lot of drivers began to squeeze the drivers, and the drivers reacted by forming unions. This story is as old as capitalism has been around. The workers, to defend themselves, formed the union. And the customers, to defend themselves, demanded that the government get involved because they were taking too many risks riding in these cab 
cabs that the driver may not have been trained enough, there may not have been insurance in the event that there was an accident, etc., etc. Make a long story short, the government got involved to make sure that taxi cab riding was safe for the public. And the way they did that was to pass a whole lot of rules. The driver had to be vetted. The, the car had to be insured. There had to be all kinds of inspections to make sure the car was safe to drive in, etc., etc. And it was also at that point that the unions emerged and put pressure on the government to make sure that the union could organize these workers, could approach them and say, look, if you would rather be pr uh, protected by a union, we're here, you can do it. And a deal was struck, as happens so often, a deal between the workers and their union and the companies running the cabs and the government. And here's what was done. A price was established for a taxi ride, a price that was sufficient for the company to make a profit, for the workers to earn a decent living and to have proper benefits, and for the public to have the assurance that the ride was safe, the driver was properly trained, etc. And so it was for decades. This worked out perfectly well. What Uber and Lyft represent is an attempt to get away from this arrangement. They would offer the ride more cheaply. They would offer it under different circumstances. And how were they able to do that? Because they had the new app and the new technology? Not at all. That didn't make much of a difference. What they had was drivers who were not part of a union, at least not yet, and whom they could treat in that manner, cutting their wages, cutting their benefits. And they weren't governed by the government's rules because they weren't technically a taxi company. They were a riding service. So their drivers, who knows how much training they got, who knew whether they had proper insurance. And all that has happened since they began is they've made a lot of money, They've made high profits because they don't pay their drivers very well, because they don't have to pay the costs of what the government regulations demand of the taxis, etc., etc. And now that's changing. Why? Because people are having problems with Uber and Lyft. What problems? The very problems they had with taxis way back when. And the end result is governments are getting more involved in regulating the Uber-Lyft type of service, and the workers are joining unions like the 14,000 in New York joining the ATU this last few weeks. And I just wanted to make sure everybody understood how this old capitalist story is being rerun in what claims to be a new industry, a gig economy, and all the other fancy phrases. I'm
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, boycott Wendy's until they join the Fair Food Program. Now, if concern for your health isn't usually enough to keep you away from a Wendy's restaurant, then maybe their labor rights violations will. Right now, there is a farm worker union-led national boycott of the fast food giant, and these activists need your support. It turns out Wendy's is not one of 14 corporate retailers in what is called the Fair Food Program. According to the Coalition of Imokali Workers, or CIW, leading the boycott, the fast food program which they created is a unique partnership between farm workers workers, farmers, and companies like McDonald's, Taco Bell, and Walmart that exists to root out abuse and sexual harassment in agricultural fields from coast to coast. But not only has Wendy's not joined, they're actually kind of being dicks about it. First, they started getting their tomatoes from Mexico to circumvent fair foods and avoid scrutiny from U.S. regulators. That means they are now supporting farms where workers confront wage theft, sexual harassment, poor living conditions, child labor, and even slavery without any protections. Then, adding insult to injury, Wendy's recently published a code of conduct for suppliers that leaves out the two major components of the fair food program worker participation, and verifiable enforcement mechanisms for standards. So basically, it just amounts to a bunch of empty, vague promises. You can support this boycott by, obviously, not eating at Wendy's until they join the Fair Food Program, and by visiting allianceforfairfood.org to learn more and sign the Wendy's Boycott Pledge. And of course, you can spread the word via social media using the hashtag BoycottWendy's. No apostrophe. While you're at it, consider making workers' rights and protections part of your theory of change by getting involved in the long term with organizations like Alliance for Fair Food, Farm Worker Justice, Fight for 15, Jobs with Justice, Good Jobs Nation, and other organizations fighting for worker justice for all. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if supporting the efforts of worker unions and all agricultural workers is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about boycotting Wendy's until they join the Fair Food Program via social media so that others in your network can take action too. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage? The practice of tipping uh, a waiter or waitress was originally a European idea, and it began to find its way across the ocean in the mid-1850s, and Americans didn't like it. In fact, there were city governments and, and states that were outlawing tipping. That changed after the Civil War, when all the slaves were freed, and the train industry was growing, and they wanted to hire all these Pullman porters. And the train company did not want to pay these former slaves any salary at all. They wanted them to live off the tips they got as a Pullman porter. So from 1865 to 2016, 
The salary for service workers in the food industry has risen all the way from zero to $2.13 as the federal minimum. In Missouri, we will not tolerate that kind of abuse, and so tipped workers can be hired for $3.82 an hour. No sense taking advantage of folks, is there? Most restaurant servers are female, and because they are working for tips, they often are put in a position of just enduring whatever harassment or abuse comes their way in order to be given enough tips to live on it, which is one annoying thing, but I have to say, as bad as that is, for me it's not the whole picture. The restaurant closest to my home is owned by the billionaire O'Reilly family, and I am expected to pay their labor costs by tipping the staff who are busting their butts making more money for the O'Reillys. Since I pay attention to labor issues, I have to admit it gets harder and harder for me to eat out. The Metropolitan Grill, the Metropolitan Farmer, Barley, Wheat, and Rye, the Great American Taco Company uh, that has a couple of locations in Springfield are all owned by a right-wing guy who makes sure that none of his servers get enough hours to qualify for health insurance. And I would starve to death before I would give that heartless man another dollar. The same goes for the Obamacare, uh, anti-Obamacare owner of Papa John's Pizza, or for that matter, the big game hunter that owns Jimmy John's. All of which helped to inspire me to start trying to grow a lot of my own food in my backyard, um, because there's just fewer and fewer people that I want to support by paying them a profit for abusing their workers. The most wealthy people in America are the owners of Walmart, and they assiduously control their labor force to shift the burden of paying them onto the taxpayers in this country who have to support the public housing, Medicaid, SNAP, and other social programs Walmart employees need to survive. In fact, in new employee orientation, they oftentimes will give education in how to sign up for these government benefits that they will qualify for by working for Walmart. Even the local families who own our McDonald's, Wendy's, Panera, and other fast food restaurants are all multimillionaires paying employees in a way that shifts the burden of their support onto social welfare programs. Our system rewards billionaires and millionaires for keeping their workers in poverty. Many of these people absolutely cannot see that they would be better citizens. They would be better people. Or if they're religious, they would be better Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, or Hindus if they would temper their desire for profits with some desire to create better paying jobs for their employees. What I find mystifying is that it's been demonstrated for the past decade, study done through Harvard's uh, business school, that the employment model used by Costco that pays higher salaries, has better health care benefits and retirement programs for their workers, that they are basically in head-to-head competition with Sam's, and they make more profit than Sam's does, their chief rival. Now, the owners of Sam's and Walmart are not stupid. They have seen these studies. They know it is true. But somehow they've reached a point 
where they would actually rather make a little less money if it allows them to abuse their millions of employees a little bit more. Am I stretching too far to say that they take some personal gratification by making millions of employees more miserable, forcing them to live in poverty, to keep them dependent on food stamps and public housing. There are people who will not do the right thing until they are forced to do the right thing. We did not just morally grow our way out of slavery or indentured servanthood or child labor we legislated them out of existence because there are things a society will not do on its own just because it's right. Labor Day in America has a bit of a dubious beginning and a very checkered past. Grover Cleveland signed the federal holiday into law just days after striking Pullman workers had been forced back to work for lower wages at the point of guns held by American soldiers. We literally deployed the military to force people to go to work for less money than they had been being paid. Labor Day was not so much to honor the social contributions of labor unions as it was a concession to prevent a violent response to the way that the Pullman strike was ended. The myth that we are all spoon-fed in public schools Uh, during our youth was that European settlers came to these shores to escape the crushing feudalism of monarchy and the religious oppression that the working class had suffered in England and Europe. But before the first century of this American experiment had ended, it looked like the shoe was on the other foot. There was more religious freedom, less of a class society, and more general welfare in Europe, and they had all managed to end the institution of slavery without a war. We want to say that we are the greatest nation on earth. We say that we cherish liberty and freedom, and certainly we all applaud those values, and I wish with all my heart that they were actually a part of the American experience for everyone. But you do not have liberty or freedom when employers are allowed to employ millions of Americans for wages that rob them of their liberty and their freedom. Unless you mean by liberty and freedom is that you are free to be homeless if you wish. You have the liberty to starve to death if you choose to do so but you don't have liberty and freedom to live like a human being with dignity by working for what we call a minimum wage. It would be different if we were facing real scarcity in the 21st century, if we simply couldn't grow enough food, build enough houses, or hire enough doctors and nurses to care for our needs. But the problem is not scarcity of resources. The problem is the scarcity of morality. And for that poverty of character, there is no further excuse. In the single lifespan of my parents, our civilization moved from mule-drawn plows, horse-drawn carriages, outhouses, coal lamps, wood-burning stoves, and exposure to early death from a myriad of infections and diseases 
into the age of refrigerators, electric lights, cars, telephones, TV, space flight, antibiotics, supermarkets, commercial flight, co- computers, cell phones, smartphones, the internet, and Andy's frozen custard. And yet our attitude towards labor and fair wages is more primitive than it was in the time of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman. When it comes to ethics, we're still living in a world threatened by pneumonia and lit with a smoking coal oil lamp. America has so much potential to create a free, just, and liberated society and so little will to do it that it's hard not to be discouraged, except for this one thing. I still have faith that the modern world is just waiting to be born. The potential is there. It is as if you can feel the birth pangs in the Arab Spring, in the Occupy Wall Street movement, in the Bernie revolution, and and to some degree, even in the Brexit vote in our Native American brothers and sisters standing up against an environmentally stupid pipeline and an African-American football player who sits down when his masters tell him to stand up. To quote a famous Monty Python skit, not really dead yet. In fact, the real modern world is just now waiting to be born. We just heard clips today from David Burkus and his TED Talk about the benefits of wage transparency, Tom Hartman on how the war on unions has lowered all of our wages, Counterspin pulled together a compendium of labor stories from foreign factories to reporting on coal country to the tipped minimum wage, Test Tube News explained why unions still matter, The Young Turks told the story of millions of Indian workers who went on strike last month, Richard Wolff on Economic Update explained Uber's not-so-amazing innovation of circumventing cab unions, our activism for today is in support of the boycott against Wendy's spearheaded by the Coalition of Imokali Workers, and finally we just heard a progressive faith sermon on the importance of labor rights and the shaping of our modern world. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Brad Culling from Irving, Texas. Uh, I was having some thoughts about the TPP and uh, the fact that it uh, allows corporations the opportunity to circumvent laws. Uh, And so it's kind of funny how well supported this is by politicians because in a way, it almost seems like It's going to permit companies a means of outsourcing the politicians that they have to support. I mean, if you can get, say, a a politician that you have to bribe in in a country that doesn't cost you very much, you go there, you get the law passed that you need, and then by virtue of this treaty, it would apply in the United States. And, And one thing I'm curious about living here in Texas is, let's say you're a liquor producer, right? And there are the dry county here in Texas as still exists, would TPP allow you to say, for example, sue to circumvent those blue laws? Just a thought. Anyway, maybe you might want to look into it. Thanks. 
Hi, Jay. This is Chris from Colorado. Uh, I just listened to the episode on libertarianism, and I had to call and comment, mostly because of that eloquent and succinct explanation you gave at the beginning of the show of libertarianism. That is exactly the way I feel about it. It is it's somebody that's held on to a deep religious philosophy and would rather alter reality to fit that philosophy rather than admit that maybe the philosophy is flawed. For a long time, I have a confession to make, for a long time, I called myself a libertarian. Uh, when I was 17 um, in high school, because we were coming up on voting age, they had people from the, uh, you had to take a government econ class as a senior and they were coming up on voting age. And so they had representatives from the various political parties come and talk to us and the Republicans and Democrats came out and they were stuffy old guys in suits and I was a full of piss and vinegar, angry 17 year old and the last thing I was going to do was listen to some old dude in a suit. So I kind of blew them off and then there was a rep from the Libertarian Party, about 24 years old dressed in khakis and a button-up shirt, sleeves rolled up, you know, and he talked about libertarian philosophy of personal responsibility and all this kind of stuff, and he mentioned curtailing drug legislation, which is something that I'm actually for because I knew about prohibition. I didn't understand my prohibition of alcohol. We admitted that didn't work, but yet we continued to, pro you know, prohibition on drugs, even though it does nothing. So that perked my ears up. And again, being young, I thought, hey, these are the guys for me. And I continued to follow the Libertarian Party well into my 20s, I think into my 30s, for all the wrong reasons. You had a segment uh, from David Pakman that I'm glad you actually show, uh, played that because it pains me to see a lot of people who, young people, who were very much for Bernie Sanders now supporting Gary Johnson. And it seems completely unaware that the last thing Gary Johnson is going to do if he gets his way, or if he was to get his way, would be expand Medicare for the entire country. He would abolish it if he had his way. So, you know, I basically grew up and realized that, you know, this libertarian stuff, yeah, there may be some stuff that I agree with, but for the most part, to make a society function, you can't make it all about the individual. I think a couple of segments in this show actually did say that, that you know, society just doesn't exist on the libertarian platform. And I know libertarians are going to fire back and say, no, 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 no. But again, I've heard enough of it. Guys, please, come on, you know, step into reality and admit that maybe, just maybe, taxes are okay. Um, I don't know that that will ever happen. But thanks for all you do, Jay. You rock. Take it easy. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, uh, that call we just heard from Chris about libertarianism reminded me of this topic that I, I find endlessly fascinating. I, I, only within the last year or so do I feel like I've gotten a pretty good handle on it? And it probably has a real name, but I just call it the dichotomy of the personal versus the social. Because, you know, in super short, oversimplified to the max, you know, progressives generally believe in uh, working for the social good, and libertarianism is all about focusing on the personal 
personal responsibility, all of that sort of stuff. And I think there is this fundamental misunderstanding a lot of time in sort of ascribing beliefs to other groups. You know, libertarianism, sort of in, in a way, it's the extreme version of conservatism in terms of you know, I mean, it's a complicated mix, but like freedom and get the government off my back sort of concepts. Libertarians sort of go to the extreme on that. And progressives, it's all about like, let's see what we can do through government or other means to make society as good as we can for the most people. Like that's the real loose definition. But when motives get ascribed to people, it just, it stays right at that super overly simplified level. So what ends up happening is that like a libertarian will think of progressives as people who only believe that the government should help take care of problems and therefore there is no room for individuals to take care of problems or to take care of their own problems or to take care of themselves or to have any degree of personal responsibility for anything. That is a, a like a caricature of a person that I've never met. I've never met any progressives in my life, no matter how much they believe, like uh, the staunchest communists out there, I've never heard them say that individual people should have no responsibility for their own life or how, you know, what, what they do day to day or, you know, how their actions influence how their life plays out, for better or worse. I've never met a person like that. But that's sort of how progressives end up being caricatured. And so what I think actually ends up playing out is not a real dichotomy, but a false dichotomy, that on one side we have people who believe that personal responsibility rules all, and on the other side we have people who don't believe in personal responsibility and think that all responsibility should be on the government or society or whatever. And I just don't think that's true at all. <laughs> to me, politics is the art of setting the rules for society and personal responsibility is what you do within those rules. They're two very separate things that don't conflict with each other at all. And th this idea is put into the most stark relief in all of the areas that are most contentious in our politics right now. Racism and sexism and the way our economics should function, you know, how our economic system benefits some people more than others, and, and the complicated mix of intersections with all of that, and, and, you know, and lots more, obviously, but just the real simple ones. So on one hand, you can say that it is obviously true that there is such a thing as systemic racism or systemic sexism, but you can also say unequivocally and without any contradiction that the actions that individual people take, regardless of their race or gender, influences their own life. So the systems and personal actions both influence a person's life. It's like the simplest thing in the world that no one ever says, and all the conversations about this stuff comes from, it seems like, people taking the position that it's a zero-sum game and it's it's one or the other, that either racism exists and systemically disadvantages people or personal actions matter and can influence one's life. 
that is not an either or situation. And this was uh, sort of brought up just yesterday in a show I was listening to. You know, I was reminded of all of this. This new podcast that's out. I don't love it. I'm not really recommending it. Uh, but, I, you know, I listened to a couple of episodes and they were okay. Uh, the show's called Bad With Money. And it's hosted by a woman who herself is bad with money. And she ends up having a conversation with a financial psychologist to try to get some understanding of why people are bad at money. And she asks the psychologist if credit card companies thrive on people being in debt. And obviously they have this huge motivation to keep people in debt. So the whole system is geared towards keeping people in debt. So how do you as an individual win in a system that wants you to fail? And the guy's response was more or less like, well, you know, you just have to stop thinking in that systemic way and and decide you're just not going to be a victim and take personal responsibility and get yourself out of that bad situation. And that is obviously true. And so some people would hear that and think, yes, see, the system has nothing to do with it. It's all about personal responsibility. But her conclusion at the end of the show, I think, summed it up very well because she said what I'm saying, that's why I think she's smart, because she agrees with me, that both are true. The system is geared against you. It really does you know, stack the odds against people, and ultimately, everyone has the individual power to extricate themselves from that system, and she actually related it to sexism and racism. You can acknowledge that Systemic sexism and racism and credit card companies are at work. Those forces are in play and also individual actions matter. And to a certain degree, we all have the individual capacity to change our own circumstances. So getting back to libertarians and their sort of extreme view on personal responsibility, I feel like the vast majority of libertarians are the hyper-logical, nearly, you know, robot-brained people who think to themselves, if there were no governmental systems, no services, you know, nothing of that sort, I personally would be fine because I'm good at taking care of myself and I can take responsibility for everything that affects me in every way. And if things go well, then it's because of me. And if things go badly, then I'll just have to deal with that. But the, you know, the freedom will be worth it. And to me, it reminds me of this analogy I heard recently and, and really liked. It works better for our, uh, you know, meat eating listeners. It goes, if adding bacon to a sandwich makes that sandwich better, well, then obviously a nothing but bacon sandwich would be the best. So the libertarians have this elegant, unified theory of the world that stems from this non-aggression principle where I stay out of your life and you stay out of mine, and then everyone will be free to do whatever they want to do, and presumably everything will work out, and won't that be lovely? If a little bit of freedom is good, well then the maximum amount of freedom must be best for everyone. Two things. First of all, you're probably wrong. The idea that you think you would do well in a world like that is probably just not true. You'd probably end up dying of some foodborne illness or just be, you know, crushed into grinding poverty or, you know, any number of terrible things that could happen to you. So, so that's 
one end, but the other is just, okay, so great. So that works well for you. You have to understand, use your hyper-logical analytical brain to recognize that not everyone's brains work like yours. Not everyone would work well in a system like that. So your idea of ultimate freedom and sink or swim means that an unbelie- like an unconscionable number of people would just not work well in that system and they would sink. So like I say, they have this beautiful, simple, elegant, uh, unified theory of the world and the non-aggression principle. And if everyone just went by this, then we'd, uh, you know, a, a utopia would emerge. And then they use confirmation bias to assure that they never change their mind. They only believe things that confirm what they say, and they figure out elaborate workarounds to justify why any contradictory evidence must be wrong. And so they just end up dug in deeper and deeper and deeper. But only libertarians and sociopaths and believers in standard economic theory, by the way, there's a lot of crossover in those groups, only those people would think that a simple, elegant formula would actually hold up when applied to the chaos of humanity. Because shit is complicated. And so the bad news is there just is no single elegant rule like the non-aggression principle that can be applied across the board and actually work in real life. I would love it if things were that simple. They simply are not. And so I, I agree with the alternate perspective that the best we can do is constantly try to figure out what the best solution is for every given scenario. My only litmus test for policy is whether or not it works for the intended outcome. Keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our sad stories and wonder what.